Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Welcome to another episode of the LDS Perspectives Podcast. I am your host for this episode, Stephen Smoot, filling in for Laura Hales, and I am very excited to be sitting down with the one and only Grant Hardy for this episode. We're grateful to have you here, Grant. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Before we jump into what our discussion is today, which is your new uh, Maxwell Institute study edition of the Book of Mormon, I thought it might be good to get to know you a little bit. So, Grant, could you tell us more about yourself, your academic background, and your personal background that got you interested in studying the Book of Mormon? Sure. So when I went to college, I went to BYU, and my first semester of my first year, I signed up for Ancient Greek. Because why else would you go to college? Yeah, why not? Like, that's <laughs> the obvious choice. Um, I was excited about that. And then after my freshman year, I uh, went on a mission. I was, I was assigned to serve in, in Taiwan, learned Mandarin Chinese, got interested in that as well, and then came back and continued a bachelor's degree in ancient Greek, minored in Chinese, and then went to grad school at Yale in uh, Chinese language and literature. And then I've been a professor since then. I'm teaching Chinese history. Well, okay, it sounds like you have a remarkable academic background then with uh, various cultures and languages, and as I understand, especially religious texts. You've published and done some lectures on sort of world religious texts or world scripture, as, as you call it. Could you tell us a little bit more about that work that you've done there in that context? Sure, I have a joint appointment. I teach at the University of North Carolina at Asheville, and I have a joint appointment in the history department and in the Department of Religious Studies. And I teach courses on the history of Buddhism and on world scripture, and a few years ago, I did a lecture series on uh, DVD or CD with the Great Courses company called uh, Sacred Texts of the World that was 36 lectures sort of looking at scripture from various religious traditions and trying to introduce those and help people make sense of sort of new and, and perhaps foreign traditions. We are here today to talk about your Maxwell Institute study edition of the Book of Mormon. Mm -hmm. But before we get into that, maybe I thought it would be good to talk about the history of the Book of Mormon, if you will, or at least the printed history or the printing history of the Book of Mormon. So when, when average Latter-day Saints think of the Book of Mormon, they probably imagine the, you know, the blue missionary copy that's everywhere that you hand out uh, as a right. missionary or to your kids or whatever. But, you know, there's a, sort of a long history behind printed editions of the Book of Mormon, sort of leading up to what we have here with the Maxwell Institute edition. Just sort of briefly, could you tell us a little bit about sort of the major milestones of sort of the Book of Mormon printing history, uh, starting from 1830 to the various editions to what we have today? Sure. The first edition is 1830, of course, and uh, people can look at that very easily at the Joseph Smith Papers. The Book of Mormon was first printed in long paragraphs. The manuscript, the printer's manuscript, basically just has words. It doesn't have punctuation or division. It has chapter divisions, but very little other than that. So the, the non-Mormon typesetter put in all of the commas and the semicolons and the period and tried, and he did a pretty good job. It's probably over commaed, you know, by 19th century standards, but he did a good job. He also put it into paragraphs, but basically he started a new paragraph every time it came to, and it came to pass, unless it was like in two sentences next to each other. So sometimes you have these short paragraphs, and sometimes paragraphs go on for pages and, and pages. That's the way the book was printed in 1830. There's another edition in 1837 where Joseph Smith made 
several thousand changes, mostly minor changes where he's updating the grammar and systematizing things, like he changes which to who about mm. almost a thousand times, and he deletes, I think, 47 instances of it came to pass, and so uh, grammatical fixes he right. does. okay. And then in 1840, the last edition that he was personally involved with, he went back and took some readings from the original manuscript that had been lost. He fussed around a little bit with the language, not a whole lot. The next big edition happens in 1879 when Apostle Orson Pratt puts the text for the first time into numbered verses. Joseph Smith had always seen the Book of Mormon in paragraphs. And, and are, are those numbered verses what we have today? Do those, yes. Those Orson Pratt he, he shortened the chapters. Today. Yeah. Shortened the chapters, so there are more chapters than in 1830, and put in these numbered verses, and they're still the same verses we use gotcha. today. Okay. And then in 1920, a committee uh, under the leadership of James Talmadge did the sort of standard edition where it looks like the King James Version of the Bible. So you have double columns, you have the verse-by-verse, mm-hmm. individual verses. There are little introductions to each chapter, and then some cross-references, basically, right. at the bottom okay. of the page. The 1981 edition, the one that we're most familiar with now, the one that's current, takes that basic model and then adds a lot more footnotes right. to the yeah. topical guide and sort of tries to bring the four standard works together. So they're correlated, and you can look up topics. And um, that's pretty much what we use now. There was a, some adjustments in 2013, but those were just a couple of words, mostly some punctuation, like hardly anything at all. So we right. basically use the 1981 edition. This isn't the first time that you yourself have done sort of a, a reader's edition of the Book of Mormon. So you have the study edition that just came out with Maxwell Institute, but a couple of years ago, you had what you call your reader's edition of the Book of Mormon. It's a, little, you... it's a little embarrassing to, to have so many editions of the Book of Mormon <laughs> myself. Um, it, it was about 15 years ago. 15, okay. Right, yeah. and that was published by the University of Illinois Press. And the story behind that, actually there are maybe three stories, all equally true Oh, behind okay. that. The first one is when I majored in ancient Greek, I was reading the New Testament along with other, you know, Plato and, and Aristotle and Homer, other things. And I started uh, to take a look at uh, modern translations of the Bible, which are formatted differently than the standard King James. So modern translations of the Bible will usually have superscripted verse numbers, uh-huh. and then they'll be organized into paragraphs. There'll be quotation marks. There will be maybe section headings. And I thought, you know, I could do this with the Book of Mormon, not change the words, but just change the formatting and just make it easier to read, easier to understand what's going on to, to capture the flow of the story. That's the first story. Okay. Second story is in an elders quorum meeting at, at, in New Haven. There was a, the missionaries wanted to encourage people to share the Book of Mormon, and so they had a Book of Mormon that they gave to somebody every week and said, challenge them to sort of give this to someone else. So I got that Book of Mormon one week, and unfortunately, the missionaries had gone through and they had highlighted some key verses and then made a scripture chain where, like, you uh, see yes. some, and then it uh-huh. says, you know, see the next page, and then you can do the, the next one. The infamous Mormon scripture and, chain. And, yeah. and, 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 and they did that with the best of intentions, of course, but I looked at that and said, I can't give this to any of my friends because oh, no. I'm going to graduate school with very smart people, and yeah. this will insult them. Like, they know how to read books. So I gave another copy of the Book of Mormon, and then I was stuck with this, now what am I going to do with this scripture chain copy? And I felt bad about throwing it away. So that's the Book of Mormon that I took a a blue pen and just started making lines to say, if I were to divide this into paragraphs, where would they go? Is there Uh like a natural break in the subjects? And when I started, I wasn't even sure that the Book of Mormon would sort of fall out into paragraphs. I mean, 
I guess it wouldn't have to. It'd still be the Word of God, right. even if it just sort of was kind of jumbled together. It, but I found that it, it went pretty easily into paragraphs. And, and so that was the start of this. That's story number two. Story number three, my wife, Heather, is an astonishingly good reader. I was teaching uh, at the time, and I, I came home from work one day, and she said, oh, I read the uh, 100 pages in the Book of Mormon today, something like that, certainly first and second Nephi this morning. And she said, you know, it's just not, there's not that much there. She said, I went to seminary. I went to Sunday school. I've read it a bunch of times. I know the stories. I know the basic doctrines. It's really repetitive, mm -hmm. and it's kind of awkward. And she said, I think I've gotten pretty much what I can get out of it. She tossed it across the room. And I said, let me get you a Book of Mormon you can read. <laughs> like, I, I think there's more there. Like, let me Absolutely. see what I could do. Yeah. So I had this project. She actually worked with me on, on this project. And it's the best gift I've ever given anyone, per, perhaps, other than giving my daughter the phone number of the guy she married. <laughs> That's a different story. <laughs> I gave Heather a, a Book of Mormon that she could read, and she taught me how to read it. Wow, She's okay. been reading it, and she often reads it for several hours a day and sees all kinds of astonishing things, connections and patterns in it. And so we've been talking about the Book of Mormon for a year. So the Reader's Edition started that. And then in the 15 years since that was published, we've learned a, a lot more and seen a lot more in the Book of Mormon. And it seemed like time to maybe upgrade to do things. Go for 2.0 for the Reader's Edition. Something yeah. like that, except the new edition of the Reader's Edition wouldn't quite work. Because that was first written as, a, as an academic version, right? right through to, a university press. Through a university press, and it was religiously neutral to right, say, for, you know, this is what Mormons believe, but this is sort of how other people think about the text. And it was meant to introduce non-Mormons to the Book okay. of Mormon. Because yeah. I've, I've had several colleagues who have a Book of Mormon on their shelf and that was given to them by a student or something. And I say, oh, have you read it? And they say, well, you know, I started it, but... It's kind of hard to get into, sort of hard to, it's, you know, and, and it, they didn't have much interest. And it's hard to figure out the, the structure and how things fit together. So I did this kind of academic edition. I used the 1920 edition, which uh, is in the public domain so that, you know, anybody can do that. That was sort of easy as, as far as copyright goes. Mm -hmm. And it was fairly successful, I think, for helping people, particularly outsiders, understand the Book of Mormon and see a little bit more of the story and the flow and how it's put together. It did pretty well for an academic book. I think it yep. sold about 13,000 copies or so. Oh, wow. Great. Yeah. No, my, my book's on Chinese history, so much, much less than that. <laughs> but it never really reached a Latter-day Saint audience because Latter-day Saints, more, I'm, I may refer to them as Mormons. Yeah, I, sure. There's a, a lot, of, lot of habit here, lots yeah, of years. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I thought that a text like this could be really useful for kind of ordinary Latter-day Saints. So... In 2014, BYU announced, or the church education system announced that they were going to do a, a new revised curriculum, and they were going to do the Book of Mormon in one semester rather than two semesters. And I was asked by a blogger at Times and Seasons to come up with what I would do if I were going to teach the teachings and doctrines of the Book of Mormon in one semester. And I came up with a sample syllabus, and I thought it would be really helpful to have a college edition of the Book of Mormon. And then the Maxwell Institute in the summer of 2015 invited me to come do a workshop where I actually tried some of these things out. So that's where I put together sort of this newer version. And uh, with, I think, all the things that I would want college student Mormon, yeah. Latter-day Saint college yeah. students would, would know as they were reading the Book of Mormon in more depth and more, with more sophistication than often we do in, in seminary or Sunday school. Two years ago, 
there were there, there was a conference at BYU, a sort of chiasmus jubilee conference right. that was being held, and there were non-Mormon professors and academics that were presenting, as well as Mormon professors and academics. One of them, he was from Montreal, and uh, I was sort of hosting him. I picked him up at the airport and took him around town and so forth. And uh, uh, in the middle of the conference, he asked for a copy of the Book of Mormon. And I immediately went over to the BYU bookstore. I picked up a copy of your reader's edition, and I handed him and said, there you go. And uh, the next morning, he had read up to like First Nephi 8 or something like that. And he said, what an interesting and engaging book, right? And he was all into it. So uh, it's gone to very good use, your, your study edition. Well, I think it's helpful because, as we mentioned before, I, I've worked on scriptures of other yeah. religious traditions. And I'm always looking for good translations or good formatting because a lot of them are sort of hard to understand is if you're just sort of jumping into it without much background and and some formats translations are very difficult so i'm trying to make it as easy as possible for people to see what's there and and hopefully to appreciate a little bit what's there i'm great i'm glad to hear of your experience let's jump into the new maxwell institute edition then sure. and talk a little bit about some of the features here so as I was reading it and just going through, you have the introduction, the testimony of the three witnesses, and the eight witnesses, and Joseph Smith, right? Stuff right. that everybody's probably familiar with. Right. I just I just copied what the, sort of the church, the, yeah, the, the official edition. one. Yeah, I wanted all that information in there. But then I was struck by something. Mm -hmm. You also included the testimony of Emma Smith, which is not in the church's edition. Right. So I'm interested to hear your thinking behind this. So I think Emma's testimony of the Book of Mormon is a key historical document to try to understand that. And she was very involved in the right, translation yes. of the Book of Mormon all the way through. She was Joseph Smith's first scribe, and she did apparently some amount in the last 116 pages. Mm -hmm. I guess it's sort of my way to sneak another woman into the Book of Mormon. There, there aren't too many Not of them. Not too many, right. In the, in the reader's edition, I put her testimony at the end of the book in an appendix. But for this one, I said, no, I actually would like to see it kind of upfront. I hope people will agree with that decision. I think it's, it, it certainly adds a lot to me to think about the text and where it came from. And, and the three and the A witnesses are really important. I think the Book of Mormon should always be published with those. But those are written and they're signed right. together, right? They're sort of a formal... Kind of like an affidavit-esque like kind of thing. a group statement. Yeah. Whereas Emma's testimony is so personal, and she was sort of in the project from the beginning. And she says those wonderful things about how Joseph would dictate and then he'd pick up from where he left off without asking things to be read back to him and didn't use notes. And, and I also like the fact that she's not particularly intimidated as well. She thinks it's from God because Joseph couldn't, she knows him well. She couldn't really write a well-worded letter, let alone a book like the Book of Mormon. But yeah, that's good to at least sort of be generally aware of. You know, we have, of course, the three and the eight witnesses and Joseph Smith, but there were others involved. Emma, I personally, if I can editorialize here as the, as the host for just sure, a second, I think it's a wonderful decision to have Emma right up there with her husband at the forefront, providing her testimony and her perspective on this and sort of giving it that, that personal touch, as you said, not just sort of the group statement. Well, part of what makes Scripture a living document is Scripture kind of needs to be updated for generations, mm -hmm. if not... The words it would be hard to come, it'd be hard to have another translation. Yeah, to the right. I mean, some some <laughs> things that we're going to go with yeah. with the, the with the the traditional mode, but maybe updated in terms of the format. And I think at a time when lots of people are concerned about women's voices yeah, and making absolutely. making room for that and acknowledging, validating that and acknowledging the the role that women have had, I think it's time. Actually, you mentioned that there were thousands of changes that Joseph Smith made to the 1837 edition, mostly grammatical and language sure. and that sort of thing. But throughout the study edition here, you draw heavily from the work of Royal Skousen mm -hmm. on the Book of Mormon Critical Text Project. And just to 
clarify quickly for our listeners, by critical text, we don't mean that Royal Skousen is critical of the text, right? He's not passing negative judgment. He's just applying scholarly tools, textual criticism tools, and so forth to the text. That's what we mean by critical text. Right. So his project has been to try to reconstruct as much as, as humanly possible the words that Joseph Smith dictated. There's the original manuscript and the printer's manuscript, and then he looks at about 20 of early the, editions. The editions and there's, right. there's ways you can go through that information and, because people make mistakes when they copy by hand or when they typeset. And so he's interested in trying to, to identify those and, and figure out and what figure the original out. readings were. So that's his project. Right, right. And you have, throughout your study edition, in footnotes, you have variant readings. Uh, that you're drawing from scows and to sort of indicate, you know, in the original manuscript it read this way, but it was later changed and so forth. The things that are similar with what I did before with the reader's edition are the paragraphs and the superscripted verse numbers and the indentation of embedded documents and quotation marks and the section headings. Though I've gone through and I've redone the paragraphing I looked at Royal Skousen's uh, 2009 Yale edition where he paragraphed from scratch and tried to see where we were similar. So that's done. I redid some of the poetic formatting. So it's sort of updated in those ways. The real changes, though, are the first of all is the text. So for the reader's edition, I used the 1920 text. For this study edition, I was able to use the, the official 2013 edition of the Book of Mormon. Oh, the okay. Church that's significant. That, yeah. that is. So it means that, that this version can be used as scripture for people who would like to use it as scripture. So I didn't change any of the words there that's okay. all, or, or any of the punctuation except for paragraphing and then right. some of the poetic stuff. So that's a big change. And then we know more about the Book of Mormon in the last 15 years. Royal Skousen's work is a huge part of that. I've gone through his work, and rather than trying to bring back everything, sort of the, the pre-Joseph Smith grammatical updating, I was interested in in changes that have come into the text that are mostly mistakes, that are errors, where people copied wrong, or and he identifies those. And I draw about 200 readings from the original manuscript and about 200 readings from the printer's manuscript that I think just make more sense of the text. And they're basically correcting mistakes that have crept in, which is, is a very natural thing for, for copying. Right. Let me give you an example of just yes, maybe an do. easy one. And then once you see it, you say, oh, yeah, that, that makes sense. Like in 1 Nephi 8.27, so this is Lehi's dream, right? It says, they were in the attitude of mocking and pointing their fingers toward those who had come at and were partaking of the fruit. The original manuscript, though, says those who had come up and were partaking of the fruit. Okay, you might not notice that unless you were like royal scouts and doing all this <laughs> sort of stuff. But come up just makes much more sense than come at. I don't even really know whether so there's lots of these just little changes they don't really affect a lot of the there's a few places where they make a little bit of a difference in the meaning but but they make the book sort of read more smoothly and with these footnotes where you can see this this is why it's a study edition right is it makes it makes people read more carefully to carefully. look down and say what difference would this just this small word make and there's some variations some alternative punctuations down as well let me give you an example of one that actually does make a difference for the meaning in Alma 39.13, the current text reads, But rather return unto them and acknowledge your faults and the wrong which ye have done. Surprisingly, the original manuscript read, Acknowledge your faults and repair that wrong which you have done. 
which actually mm. makes more sense. Now, this is Alma speaking yeah. to his son, right, Cory Anton, who's made some serious mistakes. And the idea of like repairing the wrongs that you've done is, is sort of an important part of the repentance process. But the problem is that with that repair, there was a stray ink blot that went through the top of the P oh. when Oliver Cowdery was copying it. And he looked at that, and rather than writing repair, he looked at it and wrote retain, because it looked like a T with oh, that no. there. So retain that wrong. Right, and that's Uh-oh. what it said until yeah. from 1830 to 1920, it said, acknowledge your faults and retain that wrong. Uh-oh. And in 1920, <laughs> they looked at it and said, that doesn't even make sense. Right. We have no idea. We're just going to drop the retain. So in this case, it actually brings back a reading that's, I think, a superior reading in, in sure. lots of ways. So yeah. lots of examples of that. And then there are also, I think, about 100 instances where there are conjectural emendations, where Royal Skousen has said, actually, all of the versions don't seem to make as much sense as they should. And maybe here's a mistake that could have happened that he thinks is possible. And so I've marked those. And where are we now? The 2013 edition, Mm -hmm. the textual things are different. And then I've gone through and given a lot more attention to intertextuality with the Bible. So oftentimes, the Book of Mormon will quote passages, long passages, like Isaiah from the Bible, except it won't quote them exactly. There'll be differences. And where there are differences, then I indicate that with bold, where there are words that are added or words that are changed, just so people have a sense of how the Book of Mormon kind of is interacting with the, at least the King James text. I think that's useful. Okay, maybe one more thing, which is I give a lot more attention to the original chapters. So that with the headings at the top of the page, you may have noticed this, you can see where you are in those original longer chapters. Because those chapters were apparently on the gold plates. So that when Joseph Smith was translating or reading the translation from the seer stone, however this happens, he would see something that would indicate there was a chapter break, and he would say, chapter, chapter and, then, right. and then his scribe would write that. And they went back later and put in the numbers and such. But when we think about what the original authors were trying to convey and how they understood their own history and their own, the way that sermons go, or those original chapters are, are significant. And so it gives people a chance to look at those and think about what difference that might make. Yeah, that brings sort of an ancient connection, if you will, from the original authors to our modern editions where you have, you know, as you've said, you, we've gone through subsequent editions where we've revised the text or the formatting of the text. So that, that's nice. You get a nice little sort of the best of both worlds there, and it can definitely enhance Well, study. that's part of the project. Well, maybe uncover, but to, to make more manifest, to sort of reveal a little bit more of what the original authors and editors maybe had in mind as they were creating this, composing this history for the benefit of future generations. For example, with the original chapters, Alma chapter 30, so this is the core horror story, is in the same chapter as Alma 32, right, which is the one about faith, faith be in like the seed. seed right. and, uh-huh. and somehow Alma, whoever wrote that, or, or, or Mormon when he was editing that, thought that those stories went together. Like, you should think about those at the same time. So it offers some, some, new, some new ways of, of, of looking at the Book of Mormon, perhaps. Certainly. You mentioned in the introductory material to this book that you quote readability as a primary goal of this edition. Sure. So in what ways have you tried to enhance the readability of the Book of Mormon for your readers? You've mentioned some of the things already, but are there other ways or methods that you've tried to employ right. well, to do this? Some of them we're talking about. 
even a little more. Okay, sure. There's a reason why every book you read other than the scriptures are in paragraphs, right? It's just a, a nice way to sort of get a flow of ideas and what's going on. And I think the headings, and I, I worked really hard to make the headings as boring as I could because, <laughs> because it's not my job to say, you know, here's what the doctrinal meaning is. Right. Or what the, the, that's not it. The headings usually identify who's speaking and the context and sometimes a little bit of the topic that's under consideration. But it means that as you flip through the Book of Mormon, you can sort of look at the headings and you have an idea of where you are in the story all the time. With this new study edition, I tried to keep those features and add more things that are useful for people who are interested in footnotes and where the text came from and alternatives, and there's more material at the back that's sort of aimed at, at college students. And it's good for people who know the Book of Mormon really well. They will be able to see new things in there. But it's also really good for people reading the Book of Mormon for the first time, who are right. trying to get a sense of the story and the characters and how things fit together, how different sermons fit in with a larger narrative and such. Let's switch gears just a little bit here and discuss something else that you wrote. And this is probably something that's going to be on the minds of, of many readers, mm -hmm. um, both, both LDS and non-LDS, I would imagine. But this is something you say. The narrative complexity and coherence of the Book of Mormon highlighted in this edition offer some of the strongest evidences of its historicity and miraculous translation. Sort of at the back of everyone's mind, I would assume, is going to be this question of historicity and sure. sort of ultimately questions of, you know, is this a, a true ancient record or not? Is this a true right. translation or not? With this in mind, how have you tried to approach the historicity question in your presentation of the Book of Mormon here in this new study edition? The question of historicity is an important one, and it's certainly one that I have opinions about. When I read the Book of Mormon, I'm impressed by the careful composition. It seems like it was written in a particular way by people who were trying to convey ideas pretty carefully and trying to make connections as well. Some of that may be the original writer, some of it may be the translation, because we're just seeing this through the translation, right, which is going to be a lens that's sort of King James language and lots of quotations from the King James Bible all the way through. But when I read the Book of Mormon, I hear voices of, of prophets, and I think they are the most impressive, sort of spiritually mature voices that I hear in, in our religious tradition. And I think that it matters that they have a message for our day, and it matters in the way that we interpret the text and how we understand its teachings and the witnesses that they give. For example, the Book of Mormon talks a lot about salvation history. So it doesn't just talk about coming to Christ and being kind and believing in the right ways, but it talks about God's plan for the world, that there would be a gathering of Israel, that the Book of Mormon would be part of that. There would be, so there's these sort of big ideas that I think matter and, and I take seriously, very seriously. This is a, an edition that's for, it's for Latter-day Saints. It's for believers, and we can sort of assume history sure, to, yeah, a, to a large audience, part. Yeah. All that being said, historicity is not a really important part of this particular, particular edition. edition. I put some short essays in the back that dealt a little bit, just in very summary form, with some of the common concerns that people have about the historicity of the Book of Mormon. I tried to give some uh, bibliography of where people could find out more about that. This is coming out from the Maxwell Institute, which of course has a heritage, a legacy as farms, and I wanted to be true to that legacy and to, and to fit into that conversation. But at the same time, I don't spend a lot of time 
I don't spend any time thinking about <laughs> how this fits into Mesoamerica or the heartland or where sure, it goes okay. or, or yeah. about external evidences for the Book of Mormon. Or This is mostly about the text and how to read the text itself as closely and as clearly as possible from a narrative perspective. It matters to me that the narrators have individual perspectives sure, and, right. they, and, they, and then writing from a, a particular time and place. But I'm not particularly concerned about this, which yeah. time and which place and is there evidence or is there not evidence and I just sort of you know let let that be as I, I want to acknowledge that those are right. those are important issues the part that you read and you managed you sort of zeroed in on this <laughs> like two sentences like this in the whole book and you zeroed in on on one of them but for me the fact that the narrative is so cogently constructed and it works like there are lots of moving parts that happen with different places and and different family relationships and with the chronology that happens and there are flashbacks and allusions to earlier things and most of those parts fit together and in my notes in my footnotes I try to show here's where these people end up and you can hear more about this later or this is what they're referring to it's a really to my mind carefully crafted work. And, and that can lend itself to arguments about historicity, I suppose. At the same time, let me say this, I don't like the idea of historicity being something to beat people over the head with. Mm, like okay. for people for whom that's a difficult issue, and certainly there's not as much sort of archaeological sort of on the ground evidence as I would like to see. Like I understand that people have different ideas and that's okay. Like let's read the Book of Mormon. Let's not let that be a, a stumbling block. There is plenty in this book that I think is wise and valuable and spiritual and, and true. You said earlier that there is an intertextual relationship between the Book of Mormon and the King James Bible. You mentioned that there's many quotations throughout the Book of Mormon of the King James Bible. The most obvious are the Isaiah chapters that are quoted in 2 Nephi and so forth. Let's talk just a little bit about your methodology for how you maybe identified these quotations, how you understood them, and how you wanted to present them to your readers to help them guide them along the reading process. So this is another project for another edition, probably, uh, okay. because I haven't gone through and identified all of the biblical language there. That that would be a huge problem, and one that people are interested in and, are, and, and several scholars are working on. In this edition, when I talk about intertextuality, what I mean is the longer quotation passages, I just sort of mark where they're different from as they okay. appear in the King James Bible. Just so when you're looking along, you can see, oh, here, Nephi has made an addition into this chapter from Isaiah, or this is where... Jesus, when he quotes the, does his version of the Sermon on the Mount, things are changed. So it just sort of shows you some differences there. And then there's something called intratextuality, maybe, which is Book of Mormon writers, speakers, quote each other. Right. And so okay. I often have some little footnotes identifying places where, especially if they say, oh, you know, some so-and-so said this before, they make a clear allusion. Then I try to make it so whenever, whenever there's an indirect quotation, you can find what they're referring to. So that's what the intertextuality is for this volume. Could, could you give us an example of this intratextuality which you just spoke about? Let me give you examples of two things. Okay, perfect. One is in First Nephi 22, Nephi has just quoted two chapters from Isaiah, Isaiah 48 and 49. And then he uses a lot of phrases from those as he gives sort of his own, it's kind of an interpretation, but it's not really a verse-by-verse -verse interpretation. Instead, Nephi gives kind of a new prophecy that then interweaves these phrases from the biblical 
chapters that he's just been quoting. He does similar things in the end of Second Nephi as well. This is the kind of intertextuality that I'm highlighting in the, in the Book of Mormon. In terms of intratextuality, I've done a little bit of that where it's pretty clear what the source is. So there's the Abinadi sermon, his trial, and he makes some prophecies about bad things that are going to happen right. as, as a result of that trial and, and general wickedness. And then later on in Mosiah, when the people of Limhi are taken over by the Lamanites, then there are some phrases that show up that actually come directly from his prophecies. And in those sections, it's sort of at the beginning of the section, it says there are phrases from Abinadi's prophecies that are going to be in bold here. And so you can sort of see where who's ever writing this is pulling in these to show in, in sort of a kind of a direct way that these prophecies are being very clearly and explicitly fulfilled. So those kinds of intratextual connections are what I'm talking about. Oh, fascinating. Having these little morsels, if you will, of inter- and intratextual examples should hopefully encourage readers to try to find them themselves and make sense of them and understand them and heighten their appreciation for how the Book of Mormon interacts with itself and how it interacts with other scripture. I hope so. And I've put a number of footnotes in that are connected to literary perspective or sometimes some intertextuality, but just to try to give readers a sense of the kinds of things that they could find if they were trying to read a little more critically. And it's, and it's kind of odd because you want readers to read critically and that they're thinking independently, but also faithfully. For example, I tend to count stuff like years sometimes. Okay. Let, me, let me see if I can give you some examples here. So this is a footnote at the end of uh, at Mosiah 29:46. I say, given the fact that Alma Sr., right, Al- Alma the Elder, was nearly 20 years older than Mosiah, King Mosiah, Alma the Younger may have been considerably older than the sons of Mosiah. So when you sort of do the numbers, it, and then that makes me think differently about their relationship, and, and given my own peculiar background, it makes me think of actually... Falstaff and Prince Hal from, oh, okay. from Henry IV and Henry V from Shakespeare. But, <laughs> but it, 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 those sorts of observations can sometimes help people maybe visualize yeah. or think more about what these might have meant. Another one is um, Captain Moroni. It says in, in, a, in Alma 62, 43, it says that he basically yields up the, the command and goes and re- lives in retirement. He's 38 years old. 38. At the time he retiring he, at thirty eight, what do we all like well, to have whatever, that luxury? Whatever right? that, what that. So I think those are those are kind of interesting things to to add. Um, Certainly, yeah, it gives sort of yeah this, if you will, sort of flesh and blood perspective of these of these characters because we we have this popular artwork perhaps right where you see right. Alma the younger and the four sons of Mosiah and they're all like you know nineteen year old Mormon missionaries kind of right sort of <laughs> those but, but yeah. anti Mormon missionaries yeah. to begin with and then yeah that, that's right well you know sort of the, the sort of if you will this ethos right of right. you know we're just like them and so they they're depicted as young men and so forth but yeah the, having this age difference is that can bring new perspective to how we understand these characters and flesh them out a little bit. Let me bit. go a couple other places with yeah, this. Yeah, sure. Um, so speaking of, of maybe intratextuality, and I'm, I'm just excited about these because these are like the last footnotes that I added <laughs> in at the last moment trying to get people to change the proofs. In Alma 29.9, Alma says, I do not glory of myself, but I glory in that which the Lord hath commanded me. Yea, and this is my glory, that perhaps I may be an instrument in the hands of God to bring some soul to repentance. Right? And Heather read that, and she said, oh, I recognize that language. She says, that language comes from Mosiah 23, and this is Alma the Elder who says, 
After much tribulation, the Lord did hear my cries, did answer my prayers, and has made me an instrument in, the, in his hands in bringing so many of you to a knowledge of the truth. The idea that Alma the Younger ends up using his father's language about being an instrument in the hands of bringing people to the truth or bringing them to repentance, there's sort of this moment where Alma Jr. turns into Alma Sr., oh, actually. And, and I, I just think that's sort of interesting. That's to great, yeah. Think of, oh, here's another one. In Moroni uh, chapter 8, verse 3, so this is going to be in a letter that Mormon writes to his son, Moroni. As he, he speaks of Moroni's call to the ministry, he uses the phrase, through endurance of faith on his name to the end. Heather says, Heather notices all this stuff. It's just sort of amazing. She says, that comes from the ordination prayer, right? In Moroni 3, there's an ordination prayer that's given for, this is how you confer the priesthood. And we don't, for whatever reason, we don't use those exact words anymore, so we're not as familiar with them. But it sort of makes sense that when Mormon is writing to his son about the ministry, he adds in a phrase from, do you remember when you were ordained, like what that was about? A, a phrase that his son will certainly recognize, but apparently no one's ever recognized that before, like as we've been, like those kind of connections I find interesting and evocative and, and inspiring even. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... Uh these sorts of new things that you and Heather are just finding right now after years of studying reading this book, it, it shows that there's much here to gain. Yeah, there's, there's so much yeah, more to There's so much find. more to it. And, and yeah, something that's uh, uh, brought in as well are inclusios. So this is something that I wish people knew of, uh, as much about as chiasmus. So there's a phrase that will show up at the beginning of a textual unit, and then it will show up at the end of a textual unit as well. And this is a unit that's oftentimes... It's sometimes smaller than chapters or larger than chapters. So, for example, in Second Nephi, there's a, a, a part where it talks about um, this is my doctrine, and then it sort of gives an explanation of what that is, and then it ends up by saying, and this is the doctrine of Christ, right? This is a so right. you sort of say, oh, what's in there sort of should go together. But those things are all the way through. So in, say, in Alma 45, 21, I obviously have some notes in front of me, right? I am not good at quoting <laughs> chapter and verse. No, you um, got this right off, <laughs> off your head, man. You got this. <laughs> Believe me, I'm reading off of notes. Um, there's a footnote that says the Amalekite Wars, right? So this is all the war chapters at the end, and it, and it starts just about 45. The Amalekite Wars are framed here by two instances of preaching the word of God and regulating the church. And those phrases are used pretty exactly. One right before the conflict that starts here, and then you get those same phrases at the end of the fighting in, in Alma 62:44, And that just sort of breaks off to say, okay, we're dealing with chapters that are kind of a literary unit. Right. Sort of self-contained in a sense. And right. And those, are, to, and those yeah. are the kinds of, um, of course, not every repetition has a tremendous significance. Right, the book sure. is very repetitive. But there's enough repetition that does seem to give emphasis to things or sometimes to highlight structure. It seems like some of it is intentional. And that's kind of the game is to look for why was it written this way? Why do they use these, these words or these phrases? And what might that mean? Great. Well, I think that's uh, a great little sampler of what you can get out of uh, the new study edition. So let's talk a little bit about the illustrations in this new study edition done by the very talented and famous uh, Latter-day Saint artist, Brian Kershiznik. And uh, he has some remarkable illustrations here with this study edition. Can you tell us a little bit about these illustrations? What sort of inspired you to include them or want them included and what the process was behind including them and what you hope readers might get out of this artwork included in your edition? Sure. 
almost none of what I do is original, right? I just copy. What, <laughs> you know, like the, the reader's edition was like, let's just use modern translations of the Bible and how they've done this. And this edition draws pretty heavily on HarperCollins standard edition of the New Revised Standard Version. It's a very nicely printed and organized text. And for that edition, there are little woodcuts that are maybe two inches by two inches at the beginning of each book of the Bible. And they tend to be fairly abstract. So for the book of Ruth, I think there's some sheaves of grain. And right. for judges, I think there's some scales. And just to give a little aesthetic feel a little, to yeah, it. A, a little, little touch bit. to it, right. I said, oh, that would be nice. We should do something that, because I want this book to be readable and accessible, but I also want it, and I want it to be dignified. I want it to be scripture, but I also want it to be kind of lovely and, yeah. and inviting. And so we talked about that at the Maxwell Institute, and uh, we said, can we get some woodcuts? We said, sure. And there are many talented Latter-day Saint artists, and we thought about them, and Brian Kershisnik quickly came to the top of the list. Um, he was our first choice, and we were delighted when he agreed to take this on for us. So we had some ideas about things that we wanted to illustrate and, and went back and forth, and he had a... It's sort of interesting seeing the artistic process as he had some doodles and some ideas. And and, so, and then he came up with these woodcuts eventually through this process. And they're, they're lovely. They're really striking. And we said, we can't have these be little tiny like two-by-two two blocks in, at the beginning of chapters. These need pretty much a whole page for themselves. And they are um, oftentimes a, a people, mm-hmm. but they are, they're in black and white, and they're woodcuts. And they're, the feel of them is a little different. No, is a lot different than the Arnold. Oh, certainly. Is it Freiburg, Freiburg? Arnold Freiburg, yeah. Like Freiburg for Which every primary, letter in primary right, kid knows about. Yeah. hyper-masculinity, yeah. And this sort of <laughs> hyper-realism. Sure. And Cecil B. DeMille-esque sort of, yeah. Very much so. Yep. And these are more understated, and they're sort of more, I think they sort of leave more to the imagination. You've been studying the Book of Mormon for, well, at least 15 years with your study edition, <laughs> but even long, longer. It took much me about longer. 10 years. 10 to years, okay. So, so you've been studying the Book of Mormon for a very long time. But I'm curious to hear if you gained any new insights into the Book of Mormon from your work on this study edition. I'm not sure that we have really done as much as we can with this text as far as trying to read it and and understand it in clearer ways. We should be better readers of the Book of Mormon. In some ways, we're too Protestant when we read the Book of Mormon. Protestants are great readers of the Bible, partly because of sola scriptura. They take it right, very certainly. seriously. But part of that Protestant heritage that we have is uh, focus on, on historicity, on the historical critical method, and those are important and significant, and I've gained a lot from that. But I have really been enjoying Jewish readings mm-hmm. in the past few years. Um, and there's a, a particularly from, from conservative Judaism, where there's a, an acknowledgement and awareness and certainly an expertise with language and with the historical critical method, but that's oftentimes combined with a deep faith and a sense of the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, as, as scripture, as something that has God's word for us today and what that might mean. And that's where I think we should go. And let me give you an example, and maybe it will fit with some of what we're talking about. Maybe my favorite book in the whole world maybe it's aside from, 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 <laughs> from the scriptures, but, right? But yeah. <laughs> is, is something called the, the Etz Chaim, which is a Torah commentary done by the uh, conservative uh, Judaism, the rabbinical assembly. 
And it has the Torah in Hebrew and in English, and then it has not one, but two commentaries, actually three commentaries. If you have that. <laughs> This is just the way Jews do stuff. It's so no, no awesome. No lack for commentary <laughs> there, yeah. And there's one commentary that's the uh, that sort of uh, talks about the words and the, the historical context and tries to make sense of it that way, uh, the Peshat. And then there's the, something called the Darash, which is more of an application to it. And let me give you an example of, of how this works. In Exodus 40, 14 through 15, it says, you shall bring his son, this is God speaking to Moses, after he consecrates Aaron as a priest, anoints Aaron as a priest. It says, you shall bring his sons also and put tunics on them and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests, and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout all generations to come. Okay, sort of a nice thing. The commentary on the word, as you anointed their father, from the Darash, from the sort of application comment written by uh, Harold Kushner, which is great, says this, quote, When Moses anointed Aaron as high priest, he had no reason to be jealous of Aaron. Moses' role was at least as prominent as Aaron's. When Moses was called on to anoint Aaron's sons to follow him as, as priests, however, God was concerned that Moses might be jealous. Moses would never see his own sons succeed him in his role as leader. Therefore, God commands Moses to show his greatness of character and his love for his brother by anointing Aaron's sons in the same wholehearted fashion as he had anointed their father. We show true love when we can rejoice in the good fortune of another, even though it's an experience that we ourselves will never know. Okay, that's a lovely thing to say. But then when I apply that to my own experience, then stories come, right? And the Book of Mormon is about stories, and, and we live our life through stories. We have a daughter who we love dearly, who was inactive for several years, sort of um, went, went a different way for a while, and then kind of miraculously came back into activity, met the man she would marry, and, and uh, got married in the temple. While she was preparing for that, she took out her endowments. That was in North Carolina, and Heather and I at the time were in Utah. We were actually, I was actually teaching this workshop that, uh, for the, on the, at the Maxwell Institute, right? So we were out there for six weeks or something and couldn't be with her when she took out her endowments. And we have a family friend, middle-aged, who is never married, who doesn't have children, but who was a, a friend of the family's, a friend of Liza's, had been a temple worker. And she said, I'll be Liza's escort. And that worked out actually really well, sort of all the way around. And then she talked to us and said, you don't know how much that means to me because I will never have a daughter. And being able to be part of your daughter's life in this way is a lovely experience. It's something that means a lot to me. I think in our church, no, I know in our church, we care a lot about families, right? It's, it's, yeah, it's sort of absolutely. central to, to what we do. Sometimes maybe we care too much about families. It sort of borders onto family idolatry, right? So it's like, you know, you have to have the perfect <laughs> right. Mormon family yeah. or somehow. Mormonism offers more than just individual families or even clans. It offers a broader community. And I think maybe my favorite chapter in the Book of Mormon is Mosiah 18, where it talks about baptism, where there's a, a, a community that's being set up there, and the covenant that we make to bear each other's burdens and to comfort those in need of comfort and to stand as witnesses of Christ. I think wards can be families, can be communities as well as families can. When I read the Book of Mormon, I don't see families all over it. There's certainly father and son relationships, but there aren't families because there are not enough women, right? It's, so it's hard to sort of get our own ideas of, oh, this is what a family should be like. This is what a marriage should be like. This is from the Book of Mormon. The Book yeah. of Mormon isn't really about that. It, it doesn't deny that, but it's, not really, it's about a different kind of community 
that's perhaps broader. That's a really important lesson to me at this time, and I think when I interact with other Latter-day Saints who are trying to, to be disciples of Christ, but for whom sometimes the ideal doesn't that we always, set up doesn't, yeah, doesn't always, always come here. out, and, that, right. and, 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 and that's, a, that's a real challenge. Covenants matter, certainly. Ordinances matter. Doctrine matters. But if we are not a community who treat each other as disciples of Jesus Christ, then we don't have much claim. We don't have much credibility. I get those sort of things when I read the Book of Mormon, and it challenges me to be better. And that's what I like about the Book of Mormon. Well, that's wonderful, Grant. Thank you for for sharing that very personal and touching perspective. In addition to all the wonderful academic and scholarly insights that you've given us to this wonderful book. There's one more thing I should say before we close. Yeah, please. Which is, with the Maxwell Institute Study Edition, all of the editor's royalties go directly to the Church's Humanitarian Aid Fund. Oh, wonderful. I think this book is sacred scripture, and I feel a little uncomfortable making money on that or having people feel that that might happen. So once again, to try to, you know, where is my faith? I really believe what it says about keeping in mind the poor and the needy and the sick and the afflicted. And if I can help out with that a little bit, that seems like an appropriate way to edit the Book of Mormon. It's kind of embarrassing to have my name on it as editor when it already has an editor. Like, <laughs> it's Mormon's yeah. book. And I'm honored to be part of that. Thank you again, Grant, for coming on the show and for, for sharing your perspectives. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Be sure to check out LDSperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.